0: Good morning. morning. Thank you very much, Hannah, Angie, Fern, Ryan, Trevor, Bruce, Sharon and Joe, making everything work from the back for focusing our thoughts on communion. Jody and Mark for helping us focus our thoughts on communion about what it's all about. about, what our priorities should be, what's the most important thing, despite all the other exciting things going on. Let's just uh, open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father in Heaven, again, we just pause. We just marvel that the God who created and sustains the universe created and loves us. Father, we don't know Why? And it's certainly not because it's anything we deserve. But we just thank you, Father, and marvel at your love, at your grace, at opening our hearts to you and to your love. Father, help us this morning as we just seek to learn more from your word. Help us to explore it, help us to grow from it, and to honor you in our response. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked into Jesus' relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We're reminded they're serving or working with the people in Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem. And we learned about another one of Jesus' miracles, raising someone from the dead, this time Lazarus. People were searching for Jesus and hearing about him, and they wanted to come and see this amazing man who raised somebody from the dead. And a lot of them were coming to believe in him. But because of that, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. And they also decided that they needed to kill Lazarus because he was pointing people to Jesus. As Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it would be better that one person, namely Jesus, should die than for an enta- entire nation to perish. And we also saw Mary's example of worship. And Carrie reminded us that a life well lived for Jesus is a life well lived indeed. So this morning we're going to look at the rest of chapter 12, John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. If you're looking for it, if you're following along in the brown Bibles and the pews, it can be found on page 1671. Again, page 1671. Now we usually reflect on this part of the chapter the week before Easter, on what we call Palm Sunday, the people were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The population of, the, of Jerusalem in those days has been estimated to be different numbers, but many have estimated to be in the range of a quarter million people. So quite a significant number. But at the Passover, there could have been four times as many people. There could have been up to, in around a million people. So quite the big event, a lot of people in a relatively small area. One of the things I found, uh, I guess I shouldn't, but I always find amazing, is just how well all the pieces of this gospel all tie together. And so what I'm going to do this morning, instead of just reading the whole passage uh, at once, I'm just going to go through a, a few verses at a time and just comment on those. So reading from verses 12 to 13, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. In other words, Hosanna! O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The palm branch was a national symbol and appeared on Jewish coins. Waving palm branches symbolized victory. The people were hailing Jesus as the coming king. Even more significantly, they were referring to him as the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for and expecting. We read earlier in chapter 6, that Jesus had performed the miracle with the loaves and the fishes, after he did that, the people began to say he was the prophet who was to come. And the Bible also tells us that Jesus withdrew from them because they planned to take him by force and make him king. Now, we don't know if some of the same people were in the crowd at this time, but you can just imagine, well, he wasn't ready to be king then, but now it's time to make him the king. But again, we know that Jesus wasn't quite going to, be, wasn't going to be the king, or wasn't ready to be the king that they wanted. They didn't realize that his kingdom was not a political one. He wasn't there to set them free from the Romans. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, came to deal with our hearts and open the way to heaven for us. Verses 14 and 15, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9, verses 9 says, Rejoice greatly. See, our king comes to you riding on a donkey. If Jesus was coming in as a conquering king, or as a military or political hero, he probably would have picked something a little more impressive than a donkey. He would have come in on a big war horse and maybe come in on a chariot or been carried in. But Jesus came to bring peace to the nations, peace to those who believe in Him. His peace is an inner calmness, an assurance in knowing that whatever happens, we can lean on Him and we're secure in Him. If you want to take a look at Zechariah, the first part of Zechariah chapter 9. The first verses actually talk about the coming of Alexander the Great and you can contrast that with Zechariah 9 and 9, the coming of Jesus. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been been written about him and had been done to him. Just as the crowd didn't understand the significance of what was happening, we know the disciples didn't either. And in fairness to them, we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We can study the Bible, and we can see how the Old Testament prophecies pointed to Jesus. We've already noted two in just a couple of verses we've looked at this morning. Two prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. Those who are studying this in depth would tell you that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, out of interest's sake, I just started kind of highlighting when I saw something about, prof- where s- saw something about Jesus prophesying, or f- sorry fulfilling prophecy in the Gospels. And it's amazing, even when you say this was to fulfill, uh, how often you see that. adds lots of color to the word too. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. News about Jesus is going viral. Imagine how many hits you get on YouTube right now. The people were coming in droves to check him out. Not all believed and became followers, though. And the Pharisees, as we can tell, weren't so impressed with this. As we learned over the last little while, the chief priests and Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus because they wanted to keep their hold on power. But now that Jesus was reaching celebrity status, they wouldn't be able to do it quietly behind the scenes. They'd have to come up with another plan. And not only did they deny who Jesus was, they tried to bury the evidence. So again, they they wanted to kill Lazarus now because he was proof of one of the things Jesus did. And it wasn't the first time they tried to supp- suppress the evidence, was it? Remember the man who was born crippled and Jesus healed him? What happened to him? He got kicked out of the synagogue for that. Although many people were looking for Jesus, I think it's fair to say the Pharisees were exaggerating when they said the whole world has gone after him. Their statement does seem prophetic, however, doesn't it? Because over time, people from all over the world have indeed chosen to follow and serve Jesus. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. In chapter 2, Of John's Gospel, Jesus found the merchants and money changers sitting in the temple at an earlier Passover celebration. And what did he do? He made a whip of cords and drove the merchants and the animals from the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told the sellers of pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, the temple complex would have included a court of Gentiles. And so the merchants and money changers probably were impeding those people from worshipping, which kind of defeated the reason why it was there in the first place. The reference to Greeks likely refers to Greeks, but also other Gentiles as well. And we know that many of the Greeks spent a significant time and effort in search of the truth. After, uh, after Jesus was crucified and raised. Paul was on his missionary journeys and we know from Acts 17, in fact, that the Greeks were very religious. It it tells us that in Acts. And Paul even noted that they had an altar with an inscription to an unknown God and took that opportunity to tell them the real one. It's thought that those Greeks who came to worship at the feast were God-fearing people And they worshiped in synagogues. They likely struggled with some of the Jewish laws and customs, though, such as circumcision. The inclusion of the Greeks here is significant, as the gospel message is now going out to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, Jesus had said that he had other sheep that are not part of this Jewish pen, not part of this pen or the Jewish pen, will also listen to his voice. There'll be one flock and one shepherd. And we aren't sure why the Greeks came to Philip to go see Jesus. Maybe it's because he had a Greek name. Uh, Maybe he had some prior contact with Greeks in the area. And it's also been speculated, I don't know if this is the fact or not, but maybe that the disciples were kind of playing gatekeeper to who had closer access to Jesus or not. First, starting back at verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is time for the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of a death he was going to die. Can anyone say here they definitely know what God has in store for them for the rest of their lives? I would suggest that we see bite-sized pieces of what God has in plan for us as we follow his leading. But I'm not sure if many or any of us know our entire stories ahead of time. Jesus, however, being fully God and fully man, did know what lay in store for him. Early in the chapter, we read about times when something didn't happen because his time had not yet come. For example, in chapter 2 at the wedding feast when they ran out of wine, Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine at the wedding. And the response included, well, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. When he talked to the woman at the well, twice he noted a time is coming. He told his brothers, who told him, go publicly display himself. At that time, they didn't believe. Again, his time hadn't come. And elsewhere we see a couple of times that the leaders want to seize Jesus, but they didn't because his time had not yet come. But When Jesus learns the Greeks would like to see him, he notes the time has come for the Son of God to be glorified, sorry, the Son of Man to be glorified. Most people do good or even great things in their lives while they're alive. Jesus not only did miraculous things when he was alive, But in his death, he was going to do something even more amazing. Later in chapter 17, he prays for God to glorify his Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. Isaiah chapter 53 and 12 says this, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Just as a grain of wheat has to die to bear much fruit, Jesus had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven, as we sung about, for us to be set free and to draw people from all nations to himself. What does it mean to love your life? In this context, I would suggest it's about our priorities, what drives us. What do we live for? Do we live for our work, for our possessions, for our recreation time, maybe a special person or people? We can make a so-called idol of anything if it becomes our main focus, can't we? In the other three Gospels, Jesus asked, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Another way to ask this, what defines you? If someone were to write your obituary today, what would they say? That someone was a great family man or woman? That they worked really, really hard? Or would they they say that you loved the Lord and served Him? Challenging, isn't it? Hating our lives could be translated in loving God so much that everything else is secondary. It's all about Him. It's not about us. It's about loving God more than anything else you love in your life. So again, does He come before work, possessions, recreation, other people? There should be nothing in this world more important than our relationship with God. We won't turn to them, but... Just note that Paul noted the need to get his priorities right. You can see them in things like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Galatians 5, Colossians chapter 3. And you also see it in 1 Peter chapter 4. One verse that Linda's parents used to have on their wall was on a, a plaque, and I think it was a wedding gift, was that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in all things he gets first place. That's what it means to hate our lives. Jesus first, us second. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.15 and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We're to follow and serve Jesus. He, after he rose from the dead, Peter, sorry, Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. And he asked him three times. Then he told Peter how he's going to die to glorify God and said, follow me. This is the same thing he wants from each of us, to follow him. A few weeks back, Mark reminded us when he was talking about uh, us being sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Hmm. Isn't it our job to honor God? not the other way around. Psalm 91, 14-16 says, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. Jesus knew what was in store for Him on the cross. And we get a glimpse of just how hard it must have been for Him when he says, My heart is troubled. Jesus could have prayed for his Father to save him from this hour. But instead, he chose to follow his Father's will. Jesus would pay the price for everyone's sin, not just mine, not just the collective sin of everyone gathered here, but for the sin of the world. It's kind of mind boggling when you think just the price he was paying, just how enormous. How huge that was, and not only did Jesus have to suffer, and he knew he was going to suffer a humiliating and excruciatingly painful death on the cross, I think he also knew that his father was going to have to turn his back on him for a while while he is on that cross. But you know what that's how much he loves each of us. Jesus said. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. There are two other times in the Bible when a voice from heaven was heard like this. Once, when Jesus was baptized, they heard a voice, and when he was transfigured on the mount. Some people heard thunder, others heard the voice of an angel. Jesus makes it clear that the voice was for their benefit, not his own. He already knew this. This is for the rest of us. The time for judgment has come and Satan is about to lose the battle. Jesus tells them he's going to be lifted up. In other words, he's going to be crucified. It's not the first time he told them he would die. We probably all know John 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son or his one and only son. What about verses 14 and 15? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember what Caiaphas, the high priest, said? It'd be better that one person should die than for the whole nation to perish. What he didn't realize was that this one person would die, and through his death, people from all nations would be saved. Verse 34 says, "So the crowd answered him, "We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man?" Again, some were still challenging Jesus. They tried to challenge him using the scriptures. They were likely referring to verses that noted David's line would continue forever, that the kingdom would not pass away. Psalm 89:36. This is referring to David's line, continuing forever. Speaks to this, Psalm one ten, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah refers to things like this. So, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, this isn't going to work. You're going to die. But the scriptures say that you'll reign forever not going to happen. They missed the fact that the scriptures pointed them to Jesus. They were willing to accept Jesus as a national political king, but they couldn't get in their mind that he had come as a crucified king. Jesus also told the crowd he's going to be leaving them. He referred to himself as the light, and we saw that earlier in John's Gospel, right? Chapter 1, in him was life, and that, light was, that life was the light of the world. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. One of the great I am statements from chapter 8. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He noted that their time was limited and encouraged them to trust in him and become his followers. Over to verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. more than the glory that comes from God. Right from the beginning in his gospel, in chapter 1, John noted the Jewish nation was going to reject Jesus. Despite the signs they saw, many still just rejected him. Verses 37 and 38 that we just read come from Isaiah 53. Again, we see prophecy being fulfilled. An interesting Isaiah 53, such a a great chapter that speaks about Jesus, what he went through for his father in order to draw us all into an eternity with him. Seems only fitting that we refer to chapters like this on a day when we remember the Lord's Supper. Many will hear the message, but few will accept it. Because the nation of Israel constantly rejected God's message, he hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes so they could no longer believe. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 6. We see this pattern elsewhere in the Bible, where people refuse to acknowledge or refuse to give God the credit that he deserves. Eventually, he hardens their hearts and leads them to their own devices. You see this in Exodus 9, with Pharaoh. Romans and Second Thessalonians also refer to this. Uh, people then and people now in society today. God doesn't harden people's hearts and thereby condemn them to an eternity in hell without a chance. God gives us all the choice. It would be fantastic, wouldn't it, if everyone around realized who Jesus was and turned to Him and accepted Him as Savior and Lord. But God knows who will accept him. God knows who won't. But it's our job just to go sharing the message with all, because we don't know that. God knows it. In verse 41, we're told, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 6 he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It also notes that there will be a remnant who are true to God. All is not lost. We read in John that some of the leaders believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't come out publicly. Later on we know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the one who was talking to Jesus when he... Told us the words in John 3.16, came and got Jesus' body, and they wrapped his body in strips of linen with the spices. Now, before we think too harshly of to these people, it is worth noting that being put out of the synagogue was a pretty significant thing in those days. Everything revolved around what happened in the synagogue. It was where all the social interactions happened. Again, we saw earlier in chapter. Referred earlier to chapter 9, the man born blind, his parents wouldn't even stick up and say what happened, how he was healed, because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. They turned around and said, he's of age, ask him. One might have thought they'd be so thrilled that they would risk that. But it just gives you an idea of how significant a punishment that was. But how are we acknowledging God's role in our lives? Do we openly share with others or are there times we kind of shrink back and we're not so sure what we're going to say? Are there times when we seek man's praise more than God's? Verse verse 44 says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This section closes out John's account of Jesus' public ministry. Over the next few chapters, the time Jesus is spending is really with his disciples, helping them to learn and understand more as he goes towards the cross. Jesus cries out, He doesn't only whisper so a few can hear, but he cries out for the crowd to believe in him. Jesus again tells them, belief in him is also belief in the Father. A short while later, Jesus tells his disciples about the third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. Our God is one, but our God is three in one, isn't it? We're reminded this morning by Jody, as we, in the first song we sang, we have, our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. When we see the Son, we see the Father. John chapter 1 tells us, God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, in this case talking about Jesus, has made Him known. Colossians 1, verse 15, He's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, He's, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. This is what Jesus was trying to tell the people. In Deuteronomy 18,15 and 17, Moses is quoted saying, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to Him. I will put my words in His mouth, and He will tell them everything I command him." If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Again, the people knew what the scripture said. They just couldn't put two and two together and realize Jesus was the fulfillment of all this. Jesus came to save the world, not to judge it. Again, most if not all people here can quote John 3.16, Right? So earlier we asked about two verses preceding it. What about the two verses after? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The choice is ours. We can accept this gift of salvation He offers and live for Him, or we can reject it and live for ourselves. I hope everyone here will choose to accept the gift that he offers. So, in summary, this morning we looked into some verses we normally read at Easter. When we remember the King of kings, the Lord of lords, died for each of us and that he rose victoriously from the dead. He conquered death. When you look outside at least for me, many of us are starting to think about Christmas now. And for those who follow the, the church calendar, today is the first Sunday of Advent, that time when we start to focus on Jesus' birth, when we focus on the fact that the Magi went and found him and saw him. So let's, I'm going to close with another prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. From Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 6 and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Indeed, Jesus is the reason for the Christmas season. He's the reason for every other season. Our response to him, to his love, should be one of thankfulness, of worship, of adoration, and of service that shows our love to him. Heavenly Father, again, we just marvel at your love for us, at your grace for us, and we thank you for it. Father, indeed, may our response to you be just one of adoration, of worship, of love. Help us, Father, all just to draw close to you, to put you first in our lives in such a way that everything else seems like it's it's hated. Father, pray that nobody leaves here without Jesus. And we just thank you again for him, for his sacrifice. Thank you for your spirit and your guiding. Help us, Father, just to honor you as we go about this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.